Well, again, good morning to you. It's so good to see each and everybody here. You know, I, I probably say that just about every Sunday that it's so good to see each and every one of you, but I mean that. It is so good to see each and every single one of you here. We are glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. If you're tuning in online, welcome this morning. We're going to turn to God's word. Amen. I'm going to start off with a little bit of history. Excuse me. Charles Francis Adams. Who was he? Charles Francis Adams was a 19th century political figure and diplomat. He kept a diary. And one particular day, he entered this into his diary. He said, went fishing with my son today. A day wasted. Is that your attitude when it comes to family? When it comes to marriage? Now, maybe we don't say those words, a day wasted. But is that our attitude? Good. Are we fully invested in the time that we have with our families? Or do we, do we look at our watch, eager to be done with this activity so that we can get back to our lives? Back to our lives. You know, the world says to live for yourself. Where does that leave our marriages and our families? Is that the attitude that Jesus teaches Since January, we've been working our way through the book of Mark. Today, we land here on Mark chapter 10, but I want to take just a really brief look back over the past couple chapters where we've been and where we're going. What Jesus has been doing here since chapter 8 is that he's been headed to Jerusalem. You've heard me say this. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross, but along the way, he's been doing a lot of teaching. Now, that's nothing new because Jesus has been doing teaching all along, but the book of Mark zooms in here. You see, up till chapter 8 in the book of Mark, we've just kind of been looking at Jesus' activity from one activity to the next. We haven't really stopped and looked at a lot of Jesus' teaching. But then we get to the point where Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah in Mark 8.30, and after that, Mark intentionally zooms in to the teachings of Jesus. Now, the rest of the Gospels, they focus a lot more on Jesus' teachings, but Mark doesn't until after Peter declares him to be the Messiah. And what has been the focus of Jesus' teaching? Radical discipleship. We saw that discipleship includes dying to self. We have to die to self and live for Jesus. We've seen that discipleship includes serving, even the least of the least, serving those. That discipleship includes doing everything we can to mortify sin. We looked at that last week. And to keep ourselves and others from stumbling. And now we get to our text today. And he's continuing that theme of radical discipleship. And today, how it specifically affects the family. We're going to look at marriage and children this morning. Discipleship, which is following Jesus Christ, is radical. Now, we all remember that word from the 80s, rad, which meant cool or edgy or awesome. 
But that's not the way I'm using the word radical here today. When I say radical, and this is interesting, when I say radical, I mean pertaining to the root or original. Somebody say, what? Yeah, good. Pertaining to the root or original. What in the world? I thought radical meant, you know, like way different, something way out there. Exactly. That is what it means. That's one of the ways that we use it in our day and age. We use the word radical when we're referring to a teaching or an idea or a philosophy that's very different from what's popular. And that's true. But originally, that word radical was used to refer back to an original, back to a fundamental. Someone say, how do you know that? You guys are really responsive today. I like that. That's awesome. All right. Good question. I know it because I looked it up in Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which I love Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary. If you've never seen one, I mean, you could buy one, but just go online because it's right there. Look it up. It's a great source for definitions. So when I say that word radical, what I'm trying to communicate is Jesus' teaching that takes us back to an origin. Specifically today, we're looking at what, how the, God meant for marriage and family to be. God's original intent on things like marriage and family is radical. Now, it is radical in the sense that it's way different than our culture teaches. And in fact, it's radical in the sense, in, in how Jesus' day and age looked at marriage and family. But we're going back to that. So that word radical, you see, it works both ways. It's way different but it's different because it's God's original intent and we have come so far away from that. Are you tracking with me? Rad. All right, now something else. I, I wanna say something up front before we dive into our text. This is a touchy topic. We're talking about God's original intent for marriage and that did not include divorce. And I just wanna be vulnerable before you. I, I know there's several of you out there, several of you, who've experienced divorce. And I know that there are several of you out there who've been the victims in one way or another of a divorce situation. And, and I'm aware, please understand, I'm aware this could be painful for you. It's not, please understand, it's not my intent to cause you any pain. I'm here to expound God's word. I'm not here to cause anyone any pain. You are loved. No matter what your history, you are loved in this church. And I want to say, again, however, whatever may have happened in your past, whatever, however you may have failed, God loves you. God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness reach you no matter what. And I'm going to say, whoever may out there may have been victimized by divorce, God's love and healing power reach you. He loves you. I want to set the stage with that. Churches have come down on people in hurtful ways over this topic, and that's not my intent. My intent is to expound the truth, but my intent is also to communicate that you are loved. And I want to set the context Jesus is responding to hostile questioners. This is not meant to be a passage that's instructing us about the complicated and painful topic of divorce, okay? Jesus is not seeking here to counsel people who are hurt or broken or confused or angry about relationships. 
He is answering bitter opponents who don't care about God's view on marriage. They want to impose their own view on marriage. So the passage does talk about divorce, and I will be dealing with that. But I want you to know that Jesus' focus here is on God's original intent of marriage, and that's going to be my main applicational thrust today. You ready? With that in mind, let's dive in. Here's your first point. I got two points for you this morning. First point is this. Jesus' radical teaching on the value of marriage. This is Jesus' radical teaching on the value of marriage. We're in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again as was his custom, he taught them. As I've been telling you, Jesus has been moving south. He's moving toward Jerusalem. And we learn here that he's moving south and then he, he kind of moves east as well. According to verse one, he goes beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is likely in this area known as Perea, which was east of the Jordan River. He crosses the Jordan River. He moves in this area called Perea. And that is significant. That is significant because Jesus is now in Herod Antipas territory. Why is that significant? significant because Herod Antipas beheaded John the Baptist why did he behead John the Baptist several reasons but ultimately because John the Baptist opposed Herod's divorce and marriage remarriage so keep that in mind as we unpack this that's not just a coincidence so Jesus is in this region of Phrya and guess what here come the crowds are we surprised no, okay, good. Some of you answered. Yeah, we're not surprised. No, not at all. Everywhere that Jesus goes, crowds show up, and who can blame them? It's Jesus. The crowds show up, and Jesus teaches them, as the text tells us, as was his custom. He did this all the time. When a crowd show up, Jesus would stand up, and he would teach them. And look at verse 2. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now stop right there for just a second. Crowds are there, and Pharisees show up. And by the way, that's not surprising to us either because we see Pharisees accompanying crowds all the time. They're going where Jesus is. They're trying to question him. They're trying to trap him. We're told specifically that they're here to test him. That tells us right away, this is not a genuine question. They're not looking for answers. They're not looking for information. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to catch him in his words. They're trying to make him say something that they can argue against. They're trying to get the upper hand on him. And I believe there's a deeper reason here too. Their specific question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Why are they bringing that to him now? Why are they bringing that specific question to Jesus while in the region of Perea, the territory of Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist for opposing his divorce and remarriage? Why? Could the Pharisees be wanting Jesus to get into trouble? Could they be hoping what happened to John happens to Jesus? Hmm. Verse three, he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Again, notice Jesus' answer, he doesn't answer which is often what he does. Somebody asks him a question and Jesus answers with a question. He points them back to Moses. They asked him, is it lawful to get divorced? And Jesus says, well, what did Moses, what did Moses command you? Now that's actually 
an interesting way to, to, for Jesus to put it because he's doing something very subtle here and it's easy to miss it. He uses that word command. How did Moses command you? And in the Greek, that word means to give instruction. It's to give orders. But notice what the Pharisees say back. They say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. That word allowed means to permit. It's not a command. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out. It's not a command. It's an allowance. Jesus is pointing out that there is no command for divorce. There are allowances, but there is no command. What are the allowances for divorce? That's a very interesting question. But first of all, notice that the Pharisees are referring to Deuteronomy 24. That's what they're doing right away. They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the law, and this verse one of chapter 24 reads, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. Now, very quickly, I want to unpack what's going on there in Deuteronomy. The Old Testament law made allowances for divorce, and we're going to talk why here in a minute, but it made allowances for divorce with specific instructions. In the Old Testament, if a man wanted to divorce his wife, he had to write her a certificate of divorce and send her out of the house. Now, I know when you first read that, that sounds harsh, giving her a certificate and sending her on her way. But honestly, that law in Deuteronomy was written to protect the woman. See, during this time, it was very, very, very difficult for a single woman to make any kind of living. In fact, I would say it was near impossible. But by writing her a certificate of divorce, what God was doing was allowing that woman to get remarried. Without a certificate proving her divorce, no man would ever take her in. So this is actually Jesus' mercy here. It's God's mercy allowing her to have a way to be provided for. So the law did make provision for divorce, but the, spe the Pharisee's specific question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it in any way lawful? Now they're asking this because back then this was a huge argument. This was a huge argument between different scribes. They would debate what other reasons because there were no specific reasons for divorce that were given in the law. Nothing specific. So it was left up to their interpretation in one way or another. So you had different schools of thought and you had schools of thought that were extreme and one extreme would be that it's only permissible when some kind of adultery has happened. Then you can divorce. And then there was this other school of thought that said, no, no, divorce can happen for basically any reason even if she burns your food. And I kid you not, that was a reason on, this, on the, the left side of this idea of this, uh, these two schools of thought. So the Pharisees are basically, what they're doing, they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, where do you stand? In this issue, where do you stand? And Jesus takes them back to the law of Moses, but then he doesn't give his stance. Not to the Pharisees. Did you notice that? He takes them back to the law of Moses. He doesn't give them his stance on it. Instead, he points out the reason why divorce was permitted. Look at verse five. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Jesus said, yes, divorce was permitted, but not because God wanted it, but because of hard human hearts. Because man is rebellious. God allowed divorce to keep some sense of order within the fallen society so men could just not just cast their wives aside at will. 
God knew divorce was gonna happen, so he allowed it to, and set up regulations for it to protect those who would be hurt by divorce. It's an act of his mercy. And notice Jesus says, your hardness of heart. Now I find that interesting because the law had been written some 1,500-ish years before Jesus. These are not the same people that had received the law. Those people were long dead, and yet God says, your people, you people, or your hardness of hearts. Why? Because God's people are God's people. To God, it doesn't matter what generation it is. God's people are God's people. And the same hardness of heart in the Israelites expressed in the wilderness is the same hardness of heart the Jewish Pharisees are expressing to Jesus now. So Jesus points out that this permission of divorce was not from the heart of God, but a result of human stubbornness. And then Jesus goes into this radical teaching of marriage the Pharisees wanted to argue reasons for divorce, but Jesus turns the conversation to the origin of marriage. Look at verse six. But from, this is still Jesus speaking. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus takes them all the way back to the origin, the radical truth of marriage. God created marriage. God intended it to be between a man and a woman for life. And by the way, when God instituted marriage, man had not sinned. Man was designed to live forever. So the union was meant to be forever and ever and ever on this earth. Now let's just take a quick moment and answer this question. What is marriage? It's kind of sad that I have to ask that, but in our day and age, let's ask that. What is marriage? Now, for the sake of time, I can't go into the whole thing, but just keep this in mind. Marriage, if you boil it down, it's a covenant. Marriage is a covenant, a solemn promise. Jesus says here, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is a covenant. It's a one flesh union between a man and a woman that God brings together. It's not a man idea. It's a God idea. God means for marriage to be a new unit. When a man and a woman get married, they are a new unit. They are separate from father and mother. When you get married, you create a new unit. God says in verse, or Jesus says in verse seven, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You've likely heard the term leave and cleave. You leave your parents, you cleave to your spouse. That's a whole sermon in itself. In fact, I'm gonna give you a sneak peek. When we get through Mark, sometime next year, I'm gonna do a short series on marriage, family, and singleness. And I'm excited about this. I'm gonna tackle a lot of these issues, leaving and cleaving and other things. But just to whet your appetite, this leaving and cleaving is supposed to be total. I don't bring things into my marriage because of the way my family did it. We did it this way and that's the way we're gonna do it. No, 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 no. We create a new unit. We are our own set of traditions and standards and so on. When you leave and cleave, you become one flesh. All aspects of the life, all aspects of the marriage. In the mind of God, the two become one. Jesus is pointing out the permanence that marriage is supposed to be, leave and cleave 
forever. And Jesus backs this up with a solid statement. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The institution of marriage is established by God and it's not meant to be broken by man. Now that's where Jesus leads the discussion with the Pharisees. He says, forget arguing about the reasons for divorce. Focus on the purpose and original intent of marriage. It was meant to last forever. See, the Pharisees want to argue, what can we get away with? Whereas Jesus is saying, wrong mindset. Focus on honoring God with your marriage, not on how you can get out of it if you're uncomfortable, if you don't like it. But here Jesus leaves the Pharisees, and in verse 10 we read this. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Here's where he gives his standard. Here's where he gives his take on things. And this is so typical of Mark, if you notice, Jesus leaves the public and he goes into the house. We're not given what house, but he goes into the house and he specifically, privately teaches his disciples and he instructs them more specifically. His disciples ask him to clarify and he tells them plainly, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now again, this would have been radical. Jesus is saying quite plainly, divorce and remarriage is adultery. And that would have shocked the disciples and perhaps it shocks you. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible allow for marriage? We're gonna get there. I told you that this was gonna be radical. When we think of marriage, we need to think in terms of permanency. That's God's plan. As his people, we need to be on board with God's plan. Marriage is meant to be permanent. And that's the teaching that I want all of us to walk away with. That's the main idea. However, we live in a fallen world. And so I understand we need to talk about the allowances that the Bible gives for divorce. It needs to be addressed. And I'd like to address that now. And again, like I said at the top, you're loved, I can't stress that enough. Jesus himself gives an allowance for, for divorce in Matthew 19.9, he says this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there's one grounds, unfaithfulness is a grounds for divorce. Again, it's permissible, it's not commanded just like in Deuteronomy, it's not commanded, but it is permissible. Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, also addresses this issue of divorce where he specifically addresses the issue of believers married to unbelievers. And he says, if the unbeliever wants to separate from the marriage, the believer should not stop them. In that case, they're free. These two cases, unfaithfulness and an unbelieving spouse who abandons the marriage, those two cases are clear allowances for divorce that are laid out in scripture. They're clear. Now there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of arguing back and forth among believers. But I do believe that there are other allowances for divorce in the Bible, okay? It's not so clear, but if we go to 1 Corinthians 7, we study it closely, I personally believe, and you can disagree with me on this, I personally believe there is biblical support for the permission of divorce in rare cases, such cases like abuse, when a marriage between two professing believers has been totally destroyed 
through the actions of one or both. I do believe there is scriptural evidence for that. But in those cases, and hear me here, in those cases, we should seek to reestablish the marriage if that's possible. The goal should always be to restore the marriage. I don't even think divorce should be considered until every attempt has been made to salvage the marriage. And if it's totally clear that the marriage is destroyed, then the two in question need to seek counsel from pastors, from elders. They need to seek godly counsel. They should not come to that decision based on their own. This is why we need the truths of God's word. Marriage is meant to be permanent. That's the goal. Marriage should never be casually cast aside, even in the extreme cases. Even in the extreme cases of unfaithfulness, there are incredible testimonies of God's healing in those marriages. Let me just say again, we should always seek for reconciliation and we should always completely exhaust our options for reconciliation. I hope you hear my heart today. I know this touches some nerves out there, many. And I just want you to know again, you're loved. Now, what does this say to us today? What is scripture saying to us? We should take Jesus' direction here and we should focus on the origin or the purpose of marriage. My brothers and my sisters, let us strive for good, healthy marriages. Let us strive for a good, healthy view of marriage. If you're marriage, strive to be a great spouse. Keeping God's plan for marriage at the forefront of your mind. And this goes for you if you're divorced and remarried. If you're divorced and that's in your past, be it a biblical divorce or unbiblical divorce and you're remarried, then cling to that spouse. Cling to that spouse. If there is any sin on your part in that divorce, then repent of that and embrace the forgiveness of God. Strive forward in God's strength to make your marriage the best that it can be. If you're single, cling to God's view of marriage and uphold that as the standard that we as Christians strive for. If it's your desire to be married, commit that to prayer. Careful not to make it an idol. Don't make marriage an idol. That's easy to do, but seek Jesus as your satisfaction and trust him to fill the loneliness that you may feel. I can't stress this enough, especially in our day and age. God's view of marriage is the only view of marriage, one man, one woman, forever. So married people, talking to myself too, make that relationship the most important. No one should be closer to you than your spouse. Your spouse is your best friend. They share everything, everything physically, everything spiritually, everything emotionally. If you are closer, if you are relationally closer to someone of the opposite sex or someone of the same sex for that matter, if you're closer to them than you are your wife or your husband, then you've already broken the covenant. If you open up and talk to someone else on a deeper level than you talk to your spouse, you've already broken the covenant, even if nothing physical has happened. So seek to be your spouse's best friend. That's probably the best advice that I could give to married couples. Be each other's best friend. How? Take a lifetime and figure that out. Work on communication. Spend time together. 
figure that out, build a life, build a family, and whatever you do, do not rely on your spouse for your happiness. I mean that. I want you to write this down. If you get nothing out of the message, write this down. This is not from me. I didn't come up with this, but this is true. Marriage is not for your happiness. It's for your holiness. Marriage is not for your happiness. It's for your holiness. Marriage is meant to shape us into the men and women that God wants us to be. Not that we can't be shaped without marriage. Of course we can. But the purpose for marriage is for our holiness that we can be shaped into men and women that God wants us to be. And again, there's a whole sermon in that as well. Now, happiness comes with marriage. Absolutely. But if we make that our main goal, then we've made it an idol. Marriage is not for your happiness. It's for your holiness. And if you're single, let me encourage you here. Learn to be a good friend. How? By keeping your eyes on Jesus. And this will do two things. First, it will prepare you to be a good spouse one day if God has that in your future. But it will also shape your friendships to be God-honoring friendships. If you're striving to be a good friend, a God-honoring friend by watching and looking to Jesus Christ, that's gonna shape you to be that friend in other people's lives. I could say so much more, but I'll save it for the marriage and family series coming next year. Let's move on to our second point. Here's your second point. That was Jesus' radical teaching on, on the value of marriage. This is Jesus' radical teaching on the value of children. Radical teaching on the value of children. Look with me to verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. From everything that we read right here in verse 13, it appears that Jesus is in the same place beyond the Jordan and since Mark has just dealt with marriage, it appropriately follows that now he deals with children. Parents were bringing their children to Jesus. Why? That he may touch them, that he may bless them. Now, why would they do that? Well, we actually know from culture at that time that people would bring their children to great men to be blessed by them. We see this, an example of this actually, in Genesis 48. Joseph brings his children to his father Jacob that he may touch them and bless them. It was a cultural thing. However, we see here in the text, the disciples try to stop them. Now, why would they do that? We're not specifically told. It may be that they were, had good motives here. It may be that they were trying to protect Jesus, keep him from being interrupted, Maybe they were trying to keep Jesus for themselves. Whatever the reason, they tried to stop the children and Jesus 
isn't happy about that. The text says he's indignant. He's angry. Jesus got angry. Jesus got angry sometimes. And he's angry here. And instead, he invites the children to come. And Jesus uses this moment, by the way, as a teaching moment. Jesus was a master teacher. He could take any moment and turn it into a teaching moment. I kind of envy that. He says, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now that term, do not hinder, that's the same term that Jesus used in verse 39 when he told John to stop, or when he told John not to stop the man from casting out demons. You remember that conversation? Don't stop the good work that people are trying to do. Don't hinder, don't stop the children from coming to me. Why? For such belong the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Some people think that this verse is pointing out the, the natural innocence or the natural purity of children, and that grants them access to the kingdom. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying children are so innocent, children are so pure that they just naturally come to the kingdom. No, what he's saying is children are so dependent. I told you a couple weeks ago when Jesus took the child into his lap to teach the disciples about greatness, I told you that children were looked upon in this culture as the least of the least. They were completely dependent on their parents. They didn't bring any honor in that culture because they required so much attention. Jesus is saying, he clarifies in verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He's saying anyone with an attitude of total dependence on God like a child on their parents inherits the kingdom of God. Be as dependent on Jesus as children are to their parents. That's what Jesus is saying. Be like a child in your dependence on him. What Jesus does here and what Jesus says here is radical. It's actually, it's, it's beautiful if you think about it. Jesus takes these children into his arms and he blesses them. And let me just ask you for a second, can you see it? Can you see it in your mind, just children thronging around Jesus? You know, one thing, one thing that we never get from the Gospels, we never get, we never, we never see Jesus smiling or laughing or enjoying himself. We never see that from the Gospels. I'm not saying he didn't do that. I'm just saying it's not recorded. And yet here in my mind, I can't help but see him smiling and laughing and cradling these kids and playing with him. But that's just, you know, the musings of Ryan Jackson, so take that for whatever it's worth. The text says in verse 16, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now this blessing, you can think of this as a prayer. Jesus is praying over them, and it's also a demonstration of his acceptance of them. Here, Jesus models what he said back in verse 35 when he said, whoever would be first must be last of all and servant of all. Here, Jesus is being a servant to the least, to the children. He touches them. He blesses them. He's holding them. Now, what does this teach us? This teaches us two things. One, salvation comes through simple faith. Salvation comes through simple faith, faith like a child. 
The Bible says we're all sinners. We all deserve hell. But if we confess our need for Jesus, if we trust in the work he did when he died on the cross in, in our place and rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, if we trust that work, we will be saved. Faith like a child, utter dependence on Christ. Do you have that? Are you utterly dependent on him and his work to save you? I hope so. I just want to communicate here that Jesus loves you. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to express that you're a sinner and that you need him for forgiveness of your sin. He wants to place, he wants you to place your faith in him. So if you've never done that, won't you do that today? Won't you come to Jesus? Won't you come with faith like a child? If you have more questions about that, I will be around after the service. Would love to talk to you. But by the way, this dependence on Jesus, that doesn't stop after you get saved. That continues for your entire life. I need Jesus every single day. I need his strength. I need his power. I need his wisdom. I need his presence because I can't do this life on my own. I make a mess of things. I make an absolute mess of things. I need Jesus, and so do you. Run to Jesus. Embrace him with a faith like a child. Just admit it every single day. Lord, I need you. The other thing this passage teaches us is a beautiful example of how to treat children. It's a beautiful example of how to treat children. Isn't it interesting that the man, the God-man, Jesus, who was never married and never had any kids, had the greatest advice on marriage and family, had the greatest example of marriage and family. So beginning in our own homes, how do we treat our children? That is a very convicting question. I am so guilty of shuffling off my kids because I'm busy. Who was not more weighed down with responsibility than Jesus Christ? The weight of the cross was before him. And yet he took the time to cradle children in his arms. There's a lesson here, parents, and again, I'm speaking to myself. There's a lesson in how we love and treat our children. Let me just encourage you, take time for your kids. I know life is busy. I know things need to get done. I know that work is demanding. Believe me, I know. But friends, take the time, schedule the time to be with your family. And if you don't have kids, if you're empty nesters or you just don't, there are other ways to love on children. That's what I'm going to talk about next. It begins in the home, but secondly, how does our church treat children? You know, I love that the kids come up here and they sit with us during worship. I love that it is beautiful. 
It is absolutely beautiful to see them worshiping the Lord. And it's wonderful that we as adults are modeling worship to our kids. It's a way that we value our children. I love having them in the service. And I love that we have ministries for our children. I love that we have a whole wing that's dedicated to children's ministry. I love that we have a house out here that's dedicated to these junior high and high school students. I love it. That's a way that we value them as a church. These are young disciples. We believe, we as a church believe that discipleship begins at birth and we have a whole ministry devoted to that. How can you get involved? How can you pray or even devote time to making disciples, young disciples of Jesus Christ? Jesus loves the little children. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to his relationship with Israel in marriage terms. Isaiah 54, 5 reads, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Then later, the church is included in this marriage language. And in Ephesians 5, the church is compared to a wife for Jesus, the bride of Christ. At what lengths did Jesus go for his bride? Jesus' radical teaching did not stop with his words. Jesus didn't just value marriage and children with words. He took it to a level we can't imagine. Jesus sacrificed everything for his bride. What does that do? It gives us an example to follow, yes. It gives us an example of how much we should sacrifice for our marriages and family, yes, but it doesn't just do that. It doesn't just give us the ultimate example of how far we should go to preserve our marriages and preserve our families. Jesus going to the cross grants us the key to being able to be the husbands and wives and fathers and mothers that we need to be. By going to the cross, by taking our penalty, by covering our shame, Jesus releases us from all our failures. Jesus releases us from all our weaknesses. Jesus releases us from all our shame so that we can live in the freedom we need to be able to love as he loves. It's the cross that's the key to stronger marriages. It's the cross that's the key to better parenting. It's the cross that's the key to being able to live single because he is who you need, because he is who we all need. He is all we need. So church, do you want a radical marriage and family? Do you want a radical life Cling to the cross. Charles Francis Adams was a 19th century political figure and diplomat 
He kept a diary. And one day he entered, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. Interestingly enough, his son Brooke Adams also kept a diary. And that diary is still in existence. And on that very same day, Brooke Adams made this entry. went fishing with my father the most wonderful day of my life what's our attitude about marriage and family let's not be blasé let's be radical like our savior Pray with me. Jesus, you taught in radical ways while here on earth. You you said things that shocked people and you did things that shocked people. You want strong marriages, you want strong parents in your church. Strengthen us. Lord, strengthen us to be the spouses we need to be, to be the parents we need to be, to be the people we need to be. Lord, I pray for the husbands out there. I pray for them, I pray for myself, to love our wives. Love our wives as ourselves. I pray for the wives out there to respect their husbands. Help those marriages to strive to be best friends through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for those who are single. I pray that they may strive to be the best friends, the best people of God that they can be to the praise of your glory. Lord, may your church be known as a people who are radical for Jesus Christ. Help us cling to your truth and your ways through your power. We pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Will you stand and sing our closing song?